Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. You ever have one of those moments where you get a whiff of a scent or hear a song or see an image that takes you back in time? I had one of those moments last week as my flight descended upon Columbus, Ohio. A deep expanse of green was beneath me and I remembered arriving at college from my freshman year. I didn't go to school at Ohio State. I went to the University of Missouri Journalism School, Columbia Moo. It's a seven and a half hour shot straight down I-70 from Columbus, and it's all the Midwest. I recalled walking down the sidewalk as a 17-year-old when I arrived at Mizzou with a lopsided blue suitcase in my right hand looking for the dorm that I'd been assigned. It was the first time I was away from home alone. I didn't know where I was going, and I was a little nervous. I saw someone on the third floor of the building and called out, Hey, is this Kramer Hall? The guy leaned out the window on the third floor, smiled, and called out in a voice I came to know and love, a voice of the Midwest. Yeah, he said. Come on in. Something about the way he said it made me feel more confident. And ultimately, that's what this week's podcast is about. The moments that give us confidence. This is going to lead to my conversation with Heather Monahan, author of Confidence Creator. As soon as Heather and I met, she felt to me like a sister from another mother. And by the end of the conversation you're about to hear, I hope you'll get what she passed on to me, a little more confidence in yourself in an area that you're not completely comfortable. But bear with me for a few minutes here, because I want to show you how a moment of confidence can play out over time. As my plane landed in Columbus last week, I thought of all the moments that were attached to that friendly, come on in on my first day of college. What if it hadn't been friendly for me there? What if I hadn't felt at home and left for someplace else? My life would have been completely different. The skills I took from Missouri's journalism school got me a job at the Miami Herald right out of college. And what a job it was. Every day, go out and bring home a story. What a way to learn. And if I'd never gone to Missouri, maybe I'd never have met an alum named John A. Walsh. I met John long before he created Sports Center for ESPN. When I met John A., he had a startup magazine headquartered in New York called Inside Sports. Every day working at that magazine was like an event. And every day seemed to end up at the Cowboy Bar or Runyon's, throwing back shots with the gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, Pulitzer Prize winners like David Halberstam, Hall of Fame writers like Gary Smith. Man, I can still remember laughing on the A to Z bar tour bus. 26 bars in a day with Bill Murray. Inside Sports was a creative success, but not so commercially. And when it folded, I didn't know how to replicate the experience. So it actually nudged me to take off and travel for a while to figure out my future. That led me on an adventure around the world for about 10 years without a home. 
during which time one of the editors at John A. Walsh introduced me to it inside sports, a guy named Jay Lovinger, reached out and asked if I could find the best beach in the world and write about it for the cover of the Washington Post Sunday magazine. That put me on a bus on the equator next to the Brazilian woman who'd become my wife, La Gloria. And when we came back to the United States, we started a family that would bring us three children who I can now trace back to that friendly Midwestern voice coming out the window on the third floor of Kramer Hall. Once our kids started coming, I began to work with a young editor who'd also connected with John A. Walsh by the name of David Granger. And when David took over as the editor of Esquire magazine, our collaboration led me on a path to write cover stories about Muhammad Ali and Al Pacino and Bruce Springsteen, articles about Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Larry King, and hundreds of icons who'd shaped the last half century. Move the thread forward. The interview that I'd done for Esquire with Larry King led me to Los Angeles to help him write his autobiography and created a friendship that has us sharing breakfast nearly every day for 10 years. And because I was sitting next to Larry at breakfast, I met a young guy who'd come in to ask Larry for some interviewing advice. His name is Alex Benayan, and he dropped out of college to write a book about what successful people were doing when they were his age. For five years, I mentored Alex through the writing of that book. It's called The Third Door, and it became a national bestseller. And during the time we became friends, Alex introduced me to another mentor of his, Elliot Bisnow. Elliot is one of the founders of an organization called Summit that has a home in Eden, Utah, where thousands of entrepreneurs come together. Elliot asked if I'd speak at a summit event on a cruise ship about the art of interviewing. I'd never given a speech like it before, but when I was done, I got a standing ovation. Now that gave me a burst of confidence and got the attention of one of Elliot's friends, Tim Ferriss, who asked me to be a guest on his podcast, which now has more than 300 million downloads total. Well, listeners asked for an encore of that podcast, and that led Tim to start nudging me to start my own podcast, which is why you are now hearing my voice. The Summit event and Tim's podcast led me to speak at conferences as far off as South Africa and Hong Kong, in front of companies as big as Facebook and General Motors, and get calls from companies as small as five employees. When I became familiar with many of these companies, I began to realize that many wanted to tell their authentic stories better, which led to the idea of starting a business to help businesses tell their story. And that's why I landed on that plane in Columbus, Ohio, because one of the first companies to reach out is an energy company called IGS. As I walked to the airport, I didn't have to worry about getting to the right place. There was a driver holding a plaque with my name on it to greet me. He took my luggage. It's still blue. I smiled when I thought back on the lopsided piece I was carrying decades ago, then thought forward with disbelief. Now, 
the company that makes my luggage, Steamline, has offered to create a model bearing my name. And my pals who run the company that's created the hoodie I was wearing, Sportique, they've offered to create my own hoodies and t-shirts. I can even joke that I now have offices around the world because a WeWork Global Access Pass gives you an office wherever you need one. Well, point is, I've evolved a great deal since the first day I arrived at college, but you know what? When I landed in Columbus, I was filled with the same enthusiasm. I was back in the Midwest, and as Yogi Berra would say, it's deja vu all over again. I stepped into the offices of IGS to find out all about it. It was started back in the 80s by Scott White and his dad, Marv. Now, almost 30 years later, there are almost a thousand people working there. And as I listen to the stories of how this company was created, and as I listen to so many employees talk about how this company had lifted their lives, I felt something I'd never felt before. I was able to recognize it, though, through a story that Larry King told me when he described his first day on CNN. He was interviewing Governor Mario Cuomo at a studio in Washington, D.C. This was back in 1985, and Washington wasn't even wired to receive cable at that point. But when Larry got done with the interview, he knew this is going to work. This is going to be good. The executive vice president and chief sales officer, Doug Austin, was telling me how he started out as a salesman at IGS. And then one day, Scott's dad told Doug how ultimately he wasn't going to be measured by how well he could sell, but by how well he could show other people how to sell. It was very much like my favorite Jackie Robinson quote, a life is not important except on the impact it has on other lives. By telling the right stories, companies are going to be able to recruit better, to onboard better. They'll cut through the noise, reach out to people, increase their revenues. New employees will be hired. Families will be formed. Babies will grow up and go to college. Which means every time I help a company tell its authentic story, I'll be a part of all that in some small way that will add up to something exponential. And that's why I'm so happy and grateful to all the folks at IGS who welcomed me like that guy on the third floor of Kramer Hall when I was a college freshman. They let me know what a great company they're all part of, but they also tipped me off to the powerful journey that lies ahead of me. And that made me feel so comfortable and the reason I can say that so confidently is because of the conversation you're about to hear with Heather Monahan. When it comes to confidence, Heather gets you from point A to point B really fast. I hope by the end of this conversation, you'll find yourself with a new level of confidence in some area that you are not currently completely comfortable in. So let's get to Heather Monahan. I think something amazing is about to happen. 
I'm sitting here with Heather Monahan and a beautiful book in front of me. It's called Confidence Creator. This an extraordinary shot of you on the cover. It's obviously you had a wonderful photographer take it. And this book looks so classy. And you did it yourself. True story, yes. And I purposely came here without trying to know anything about you because I kind of wanted to get your story from scratch and, and how all this came about. Because what little that I do know is that we seem to be polar opposites in a way. Right. And what's going to make this conversation amazing is I'm going to learn how to take these things that I need to fill the other side of me to make me a strong CEO. I love it. I feel like I'm half a CEO. <laughs> well, that's no good. That's, that's not good. <laughs> no. But I'm open to learning the other half, and I think that you have everything that I need to know on the other side. I don't know if I have everything, but I certainly can teach you a thing or two about being a C-suite executive, for sure. Okay. So you have been a C-suite executive. You I know have. what that world is like. Yes. But let's take it back from the beginning so we could see how all this started. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. My mother was a single mom, divorced with four kids. She was working three jobs. to. She had to leave my biological father. It was a bad situation. And she moved us into a trailer behind my grandparents' home, and she struggled to get by. We were on food stamps. And it was it's not my fondest memories of my life. You know, it was a really tough time for us. You grew up in a trailer on food stamps, and now I'm looking at a plaque that says girl boss on your dresser there. How did you take the lessons from your childhood into the corporate world? You know, it's so funny. The older I get, I'm 44 now, and I, I look into people's past a lot, really successful people, people that I admire. And oftentimes you'll see they had some really tough major challenges and that's the driving force behind them. For me, the driving force from day one when I was a young kid, I never wanted to struggle like my mother had to. I saw how hard it was. I didn't like not having the things that other people could have. There was a blessing and a curse with that. One, it gave me a work ethic like none other. I don't know anyone that works as hard as I do still to this day. And that hard work prevails. If you put 100% of yourself into something, get focused on it and go after it, nothing will get in your way. That is fact. And I've always been that way. So that work ethic comes from that growing up without, that I was driven you know, through sheer force, no special sauce that I had back then. The problem is I was so focused on money because I didn't want to not have money that I ended up pursuing the wrong things. I wasn't pursuing my passion. I wasn't pursuing my heart and, and my best interest. I was pursuing a paycheck. And that led me on a very rocky road right to the top wow. of corporate America. That's amazing. I never pursued a paycheck. I never pursued money. Good for you. Well, 
<laughs> I don't know because I just announced that it's million dollar May and I've got to generate a million dollars in new revenue by the end of May. So So exciting. So now maybe I'm thinking like the way you were thinking when you were 14. Right. I am. Yes, it's probably you are. <laughs> okay, well, to explain, if I'm looking at you in a movie at 14, are you working somewhere? What oh, am yeah, I what am I saying? Sure. I started with a paper route when I was nine or 10 years old. And then I moved into busing tables, fast food restaurants. Then I got to waitressing, which that was really when I hit my sales stride. I really started developing as a salesperson, learning the way I treat people and listen to them and respond to them and connect with them is the way they're going to value me and compensate me. And the better I would treat them and engage with them, I would make more money. And then I started making a lot of money as a waitress and then a bartender. And then I connected even oh, more with people. Oh, you'd be a great bartender. Oh my gosh, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, this was all of my sales training for life. And sales is a life skill. So I was really, uh, I look back now and I'm so grateful that I had to have those jobs and I had to hustle for money because it taught me so much about people. Okay, check this out. I was a paper boy, I was a waiter, and I was a bartender. Oh, this is <laughs> ridiculous. And if people, people can't imagine looking at us right now that if anyone saw us, they would think we are polar opposites. We came up completely different. You were pursuing your passion and writing. I was chasing down a paycheck and in sales in corporate America. And then here we are today putting all these pieces back together. And it's, it's so interesting how similar we actually are. Okay. So you're now doing these jobs and you're making money at college. I went to Clark University. My mother worked there so I could go for free. And um, I studied psychology and I bartended all throughout college. You get out of college, now you got a psychology degree. What are you thinking? That kind of surprised me because if you're thinking about getting a paycheck, would you be thinking psychology? Although it's very s smart because if you can understand how people think, then you can understand how to sell, I guess. Psychology is what I loved and I was drawn to in school, but I knew I couldn't afford to get a doctorate, which was the only way in my mind I'd be able to make money with that. So I was going through school because I was supposed to go to school, but I had already figured out. I saw the people that drove the nicest cars at the restaurants I worked and they were salespeople. So everyone would tell me, you'll be great in sales, Heather. So I had decided I'm going into sales. Wow. I've got to check the box of college. I loved psychology. It was so interesting to me. I was really curious about it, but I knew I couldn't afford the, the next step. So I was already ready to go into sales. Okay. And in college, I was told you can never sell ever, <laughs> ever, Ever. Who told you that wrong advice? Well, I was in journalism school. This is a time of Watergate, middle of the 70s, and the Washington Post basically brought down the president because he basically authorized the burglary of the Democratic headquarters. And so if you were in journalism back then, you took your profession really seriously. Not that they don't do it now, but it's a completely different 
mindset. And there was a wall between the people who sold, who marketed, and the people who were producing the content, going out, getting the stories. And I was told, if you ever cross that wall, go to the other side, even like self-promotion was seen as something that was beneath you. Sure. It was the stories you wrote were about other people. They weren't about you. Even if you wrote a column, you were writing about somebody else generally. And so from the time I was 18, 19, 20, this was just pushed into my brain. You can never sell. Ever, ever, ever. Your job is to just go out and meet people, do the interviewing right. It's what you love. It's your passion. So you're going to have a happy life. And somebody on the other side of the wall who has a passion for sales will bring in the money so that you can get paid. That was the setup. Wow. (laughs) You're like stunned by this. Well, Here's the realization, though, that's important for people to know. Everyone is in sales. You were in sales and you didn't know it. Whoever this person was was telling you this. They were in sales. They didn't know it. This isn't one person. This this was the dynamic. It's a misconception. But to take that further, I was in sales. I was a chief revenue officer in a media company. And it was looked down on that I would ever have a personal brand or promote myself. That was seen as a, you know, oh, no, you don't do that. So that wasn't limited just to, you know, journalism. There are all of these. Society tells you so a plethora of different things that you should do this. This is your lane. In this lane, this is acceptable or this is not. None of that is accurate. And I am li- I'm standing here right now in front of you living proof that, I was put in the sales lane. And in sales, you're supposed to sell the content and stories that are created and drive revenue through that and through your team. But you're not supposed to create anything. Well, the day that I got fired from corporate America, I decided I am a creative person. I am going to create. And now we're sitting here today. This salesperson busted through those lanes and said, Not only am I a salesperson, I'm also an author. I'm a writer. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a speaker. I can be my best me wherever I decide to go, not where people tell me I have to go. All right. Let's just go back a couple of steps because I want to see how you took that psychology degree and got into corporate America and what it was like climbing that ladder. Where'd you go? Climbing the corporate ladder is not fun. Not fun. No, it's not fun. I I left bartending and went to work for the Gallo Winery. They had a great sales training program. Oh, man. Okay. And you have your wine background. I'm very familiar. There we go. All right. (laughs) So that was... That was interesting. I was one of three women out of a hundred person sales team. So it was really challenging and there was a lot of, you know, sexual harassment and it it ended up being such a difficult situation I had to leave. I was not confident back then in myself and I didn't stand up for myself. I just decided to run away from a bad situation. However, I had learned so much in that first year working at Gallo about the basics of sales. And I really decided that this path was a good path for me. And when I left there, I got into radio and started my first radio job as a radio salesperson. Ah, okay. Now, I'm I'm looking at you in front of the mic. You're so comfortable. 
and now it that explains it. All I that was, time. I, no, I was not on the radio. I was selling radio. I was on the sales side. So this, the way you were told, <laughs> no. the way you were told, you have to stay in this lane and you create. You were told you can't go to the I microphone. I can't go on the microphone. And one time we had, I was in radio for 20 years and we had a horrible situation mm -hmm. with a talent. And I said, you know what? Forget it. I'm jumping and I'm doing a show. And I was told, Heather, come on. You're the chief revenue officer. You cannot do that. It's beneath you. And this I, is wild. I, and I just thought, wow, that's crazy. Because in my mind, I feel like I could do it. But, you know, I was told no by the You, you cannot society. create content. You're right. here only to sell. You, your job is monetization, and that's what you're great at, and focus on that. Wow. This, it's, this is yin and yang. Parallel life. Seriously. <laughs> so you start out at Gallo. Where do you go from there? I went to Wilkes Broadcasting from there. I was at a dinner with my then boyfriend, met a guy. I chat people up wherever I go just because, you know, I want to connect with people, get to know people. Um, and that's so important. It, I'm back to the bartender. Exactly. That's it's right. applying that life skill of sales to wherever you go and whatever you do. And it, it helps so much and, and enriches your life, expands your network. I'm talking to this gentleman. He says, you seem like you'd be a great salesperson. I said, oh yeah, I am. And he said, well, then you should come work for me. I said, you can't afford me. Now this was pre-Google. We didn't have, you know, cell phones with Google accessible. And he said, name your dollar amount. And I said, $80,000. And he laughed. He said, done, start tomorrow. Little did I know the guy was worth like a hundred million dollars. You know, I had wow, done no due diligence. <laughs> I probably could have gotten a million a year. I actually certainly could have, but I totally, I grossly undersold myself. Again, this is back at a time where I just left a bad situation because I was being harassed and I was in a really low moment myself, not feeling great about myself. And I just took the first thing that I could get. It ended up being a blessing. This man taught me so much about sales, about the radio business, about owning your own company. And ultimately he made me an equity partner in his company uh, when I was 24 years old. Uh, what did he teach you? What are the rules that he taught you? Well, he's sales is his lifeblood. So he's exceptionally aggressive, which specific to women. No, I'm not aggressive. Okay, well, then this is good for you. And, and a lot of women are not either. They can be rather timid around closing or asking for things. So he taught me to flip the way that I did it. You know, instead of focusing so much on, oh, I had a great dialogue with this person. We really connected. He would say, so freaking what? Where's the order? Where's the signed contract? <laughs> and you laugh, but he would, would enforce that for every sales call I went on, and that was my job to be out on sales calls, you have to ask for the order on every call. Picture how good you get at closing when you're out 10 meetings a day and you're asking for an order. Within one year, my closing percentage went up massively because every single meeting I went on, I dropped a pen with a contract and said, Let's get down and let's let's discuss what we're going to do here. Obviously, you know, this is the right fit for you. I'm committed to making this happen. Let's get this thing done and start tomorrow. And I would just so aggressively just assume You know what's amazing about yes. that? There's no contract in front of us. There's no pen in front of us. But when you just look me in the out. eye and ask, all right, where, where do I sign? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what I'm buying. <laughs> but it's just the habit when you ask so often for the same thing, you get, you're so confident in it and you're so good at it that you're not afraid of rejection anymore. And that's the key to sales is not being afraid of rejection. And he taught me that in a really massive way. 
All right. So ask for the order. And every I, time, not every sometimes. Time, I was just talking to my friend Tom Breitling, who um, he's had a couple of businesses. He and his partner Tim made a hundred million dollars twice. Uh, wow. By starting out with a hotel reservation company just when the internet was getting going. So they were one of the first people up on the internet. And then they sold to Expedia. And then they took the hundred million that they made and they bought the golden nugget. And they flipped that more than a year later for a hundred million dollar, another hundred million dollar profit. And he was telling me that Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, has this business advice, five rules to business. One is always get the order. And two to five, oh, it don't matter. <laughs> it's just get the order. And what you just showed me was get the order, but you did it in such a way that was full of confidence and good spirit like something good was going to happen if I signed that paper. Absolutely something good is going to happen when you sign the paper, when you believe in your product and believe in yourself, you know, supporting that person and making sure things work. You can feel really good about that. And I did. Okay. What else did your boss teach you? So he taught me to leap and leap. Leaping was is continues to be. It's been a really hard thing for me in my life. When I am going to go to the next level, like everyone, I get really scared. And I'll never forget my boyfriend at the time. I was 24, cheated on me, and I was going to work, looking devastated, wearing my heart on my sleeve. And he finally pulled me aside and said, "What's going on with you? You're my number one producer, and you seem down." I shared with him what happened. He said. I want you to get on a plane with me. I don't want you to ask where we're going, but I want you to know I'm going to make you a very rich woman and you are going to make me very proud. Do you want to be my partner? And I thought to myself, I thought, you know what? I had never left Worcester and here I didn't want to run into this guy anymore. He had broken my heart. And I thought, you know what? This sounds like a great opportunity. He really capitalized on my vulnerability in that moment. I am, I would never go back and do this again, but I'm grateful I did it. I jumped on a plane with him. I didn't know where I was going. And he cut me into a deal for, we bought a a group of properties for radio stations in Saginaw, Michigan for $25 million. And in under three years, I turned it into a $55 million operation and really put my name on on the map. Oh, man. (laughs) That's beautiful. That he had... The vision to see what was inside you is either amazing, but maybe it's not amazing because I'm looking at you now. I, I see it. He really believed in me. He was the first guy in business that believed in me and not because of what I looked like. He believed in me because he he generally cared about me and he was not a dirtbag. He was a good guy. And for me, that had meant so much because I had dealt with a lot of dirtbags in business. Okay. Yeah. You know what? You just said because of what I look like. Uh, Explain that. So I definitely, you know, as a woman in business, there's blessings and curses of being a woman in business. And I take very good care of myself. I work out all the time and I'm an attractive woman. And a lot of people will say, oh, you're just lucky. You know, you're so lucky. None of this is luck, right? So what it is, is hard work in being very conscious of how I move forward. There have been countless times in work where I've had other women tell me that I 
look horrible and I should wear my hair in a bun and that I'm really, you know, not credible because of the way that I look. I've had, I've been bullied so much by women in business and then harassed by men in business, especially when I was younger because of how I looked. It was a nightmare in my 20s. I have converted that as I've grown older and in my 40s, I don't have problems like that with it any any longer. Now I allow my looks to be part of my whole package of who I am and I'm proud of it and it opens doors, great, it should, because for a long time, it forced me to run out of doors. Wow, bullied by women, harassed by men, climbing the that, ladder. That was my 20s, climbing the ladder, 100%. Now, I, I never climbed any ladders. I was always out. By myself. When you're a writer, you can be out by yourself and you find your stories. And when I think about it, I did sell the stories to the editors sure. and in order to keep myself going. But I never will understand what it's like to try and climb a corporate ladder. Do you wake up in the morning thinking like, all right, how am I going to get to this next? Yes. You do. Oh, yeah. It's really clear in corporate America, if you're a very driven person and you know where you want to go, it's so clear. It's a well-lit arena versus being an entrepreneur, which is pitch black and you don't know where you're going, oh, which man. is complete opposite, right? So, but it's very well-lit. So you know who you need to leapfrog People are stabbing one another in the back. There's, you know, private conversations that you don't know about, but you're aware it's all going on once you've been in corporate America for a decade. So by the time I hit the first publicly traded company I went to work for, I knew the game. I knew what was going on and I knew exactly where I wanted to go. And that's when I pitched myself for a job that didn't exist, which was VP of sales and was awarded that position. I'm, I've never had a like wake up thinking, how do I avoid so-and-so stabbing me in the back? It would seem like such a gigantic waste of time. I just wanted to create. No, yeah. Well, everybody doesn't like it, but it's just- You gotta do it. It's part of the corporate America game. And, and, you know, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there's good companies out there where, where it is not the day-to-day. -day. I will say my experience in corporate America was one that was more of a toxic environment. Okay, so now you go to Michigan, you become a superstar. Where do you go from there? So I left there and I went to the- Why'd you leave there after you just- I, I did not like living in Saginaw, Michigan. Okay. And that I went for that opportunity, that specific opportunity. So as soon as we closed, I was leaving and they put a non-compete that I could not work for the company that bought our properties. They were trying to force me to stay. So they put a clause in the agreement that I could not work for that owner that I had been working for for the last whatever, four or five years. And so I had to go work for another company and I said, where do you think I should go? And he said, you know, I, I have this really good this friend. This is the same, the same, same guy. This guy is just your angel. Well, no, I made him a lot, a okay. lot. <laughs> I made him 30 something million dollars in under three years. So I was sort of his angel. So, you know, and I still to this day remind him of this. When a hurricane was coming to Miami last year, I called him and said, I need your private plane. And he sent it. I mean, we have a very good friendship and relationship because we both helped each other out immensely. So okay. it, it's mutually respected. But anyway, so 
I, I said, where do you think I should go? And he said, there's this one guy I really like. It's a massive company in radio and, and they need you. So I flew down, I met with them, I took the job and I was so bored in the role that they had. I said, guys, you need a VP of sales for the whole company. Here's the value I can bring. Here's what it's gonna do for you. And here's why I'm the right guy. And the president of the company said, well, I don't know, we don't like change. So I did what I always did. I went back to my office and I started calling around to leave. I was bored. I knew I, I could do more. And I found another job. I called him back again. We met for lunch because anytime you're having a serious conversation about money or opportunity, you meet face to face. And I met with him face to face. And I said, I'm here today to revisit the conversation we had last time. I want to talk yet again about how I can increase your revenue. I can potentially double it within a year if you're willing to take a look at this opportunity, here's how I'll do it. Here's why I'm the right guy. Here's what you've seen from me thus far that shows you my track record. Can we sign this deal? And he said- You did the same thing. I did the same thing. I do always do the same thing. It's always my same approach. I'm very direct. Can we make the deal? We got, well, we need to, are we gonna do it or not? You know, I always say this, you're either pregnant or you're not. There's no, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure. There, oh. It's a yes or a no. And so he said to me, you know, I just don't know. We don't like change, let me think about it. I said, then you know what? This conversation's changing. I'm resigning right now. Because what he didn't know was in the last month, I'd been calling other companies and I found a bigger, much better job. And he said, hang on one minute. And he stepped out of the restaurant and called his father, the CEO. He was the president. And he came back in five minutes later and he said, I would like to award you the vice president position that I'm newly creating effective today. And it was the greatest <laughs> lesson though, Cal. I learned in that moment, if you're not dealing with the ultimate decision maker, you cannot accept a no from someone who can't tell you yes. Oh man. That is a nugget of wisdom I'm putting in my pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And But I didn't know he wasn't the ultimate decision maker. Right. So sometimes you really have to peel back the layers and get a clear vision of what's going on. Okay. So what what's beautiful about that is the way you took that first lesson and you just, in, in the most straightforward yet not, it, it's aggressive, but it's not, I didn't feel like you were pushy. It, it was aggressive, but not pushy. Well, because I, it was all about bringing him value and how great uh -huh. I was going to make him look and all the money I'm going to make for him. Okay. I, see, that's going to be a big leap for me to try and do that. I, I, and I have, I got Kevin, the manager that handles the, the numbers. Right. So I, I don't have to start going over money because that would be, that's beyond the leap for me. I just, my mind doesn't think that way. My mind just thinks, what can I create? What, like, where's the best canvas? Where's the, what, what are the best paints? So it's, it's probably better for me to have that set up. But I'm listening to you and I like what I hear because there's a directness that didn't feel threatening. That's the words I was thinking of. Yeah, because talking about money doesn't have to be threatening. It's an exchange of value, right? So if we're talking about you and your speaking engagements and I'm making it up, but you know, it's all the value, experience, and credibility you've acquired over your lifetime. And for you to package that up and deliver it to someone in a 60-minute keynote, that's a massive value. You know, so really trying to reframe in your mind 
your worth and your value based upon all of your lifelong accomplishments. You see, the interesting thing here is when I'm talking with somebody, I know they have like a certain budget, a, a lot of people. And part of me is thinking, wow, I really would like to help them. Can I figure out a way to do it so that it works for them? I, I don't think the way you think. But you where- can. <laughs> You can. And also, Cal, one other thing, when somebody really wants something, they will find the money. That is fact. And I have seen it time and time again. So yes, I've heard the objection. Heather, my budget, we didn't, oh, even when the VP, when I offered the VP idea, I said, well, we don't have it in the budget. Right. But when I showed, well, here's the the return on your investment. Here's your ROI. I'm making this decision within a 12-month window. Now we found the money. There's the money. So if somebody really believes the value you're bringing is going to grow their business, it's newfound money. Okay, so the key thing is to show them the value, not generally, they've got to see it in their case. Absolutely. It's not just a nice thing that I'm bringing or something. Yeah, I'm looking at your face. You looked at me oh, like, are no, you nuts, Cal? No, are absolutely nuts? not. Absolutely not. Wow. And, and you could have, you know, I would challenge you to practice a few different lines. So here would be an example for a situation like that. When you think, oh, you know, they only have a set budget and, you know, they don't have more, but I want to do it. You could say, listen, there's a huge difference, you know, Mr. Smith, between bringing in an entertainer for 60 minutes or bringing in a change maker. And if you want change and behavior change in your organization, yes, it is going to cost a bit more, but it's going to deliver so much more. You know, like just start practicing some of these oh, well, really- I would have to practice that. And I might start cracking up in the mirror hearing my, myself say that. I'll be so excited for you. I'll be <laughs> no, so happy for you. I can't say that, Heather. But here's the thing. Yes, you can. And the more you put out there, I can't. I can't. Because I listen to your shows and I hear you do that. You're creating that you can't. You've got to start saying, I can do that. And I'm going to. And you know where I'm going to start? When I go check into my hotel tonight, I'm going to ask for an upgrade to a suite. <laughs> because this is how you build your skills. This is how you build your sales skills. Every time I go anywhere, I always ask, I know this business. I know you've got a better room than that. Come on, will you please help me out? I just flew in from LA. Ask. The worst they say is, oh, you're so sweet. I'd love to, but I can't. Okay, I just thought I'd ask. There's nothing for you to lose and everything for you to gain. Wow. Oh, man. You better do that tonight. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing is the hotel that I was put up in is completely booked. So I know they have no more rooms. They always hold back 1%. That is not true. A hotel is never completely booked. That is a facade, right? So the general manager always has a lever to pull. There is always a room available. I I promise you this. So here's a great example. My son and I went to Toronto for the NBA um, All-Star game a couple years ago, and it was like negative 20 degree. It was something horrific. And we were in one hotel far away from the arena. But when it came time to get out of the game, I couldn't find the car. It was so confusing. And I saw Fairmont Hotel right there. I said, come on. And we just went into the Fairmont. It's during the NBA All-Star game. But I know that business. And I went into the front desk with tears in my eyes with my little boy, both of us frozen. And I said, I know you guys have a room in this place and I will do anything. Please tell me that you'd be willing to charge me whatever you need 
to, I can't find my way to my hotel, the cars, it's freezing. And the woman said, let me call the manager. And she called and the manager came down and he said, yes, we have one room. We will, we will give it to you. We see you're in need. And the thing is having that knowledge that, I mean, that that's part of the business. They always have a hold back for emergency situations. Oh man. But you okay. have to ask. All right. So it's good to practice, to ask. Absolutely. I think this is going to be amazing. You know what? I may come out of this a comedian. That is a <laughs> be- hard gig. Be- no, because <laughs> I'm going to look at myself in the mirror, because that's how I practice my speaking. Sure. And to be speaking the way you speak, I'm just going to start to laugh at myself. Not because you won't sound- forever. Off-, off of you, it sounds perfectly natural. Because I have 24 years practicing it. I'm sure it didn't sound so natural when I was 21. Like the first time you asked for the suite, did it feel comfortable or? Well, yes, because I had been selling for so long already. So sales is sales. It doesn't matter, Cal, if you're selling a client a speech or you're selling the receptionist to upgrade you to a suite. It's the same thing. Or you're selling your wife why you want to go out to dinner tonight. You know what I mean? Like we're always selling in every exchange. And the more you open your eyes to that, the more you can refine your approach and improve your skills. All right. I'm going to work on this. I promise. Now, where do you go from there? Because you're constantly, it it sounds to me like you're doing a lot of leaping. This is not like ladder climbing. This is building jumping. So from there, I I was at the same company in radio for 14 years. This was a 14-year stint. And, and never behind the mic. Never, not once. I asked and I was told no. I was, you, you that was beneath me. Content. I was told that's yeah, that's beneath you. You're over here in this lane. And the other side of the wall. It's okay. exactly the same that yeah, you were, we were just it's on, so right. interesting. They did it to both of us. To both of us, yeah. Okay. Well, we allowed it to happen. And that's what I realize now. I allowed someone to tell me what I could do, which is that is way in my rearview mirror now. No one tells me, you know, you can or can't do this. That those days are over. But it was only the internet that allowed it because if if you were, say, a writer back in the eighties. The only place that you could write was, say, a newspaper or a magazine or a book, and they, the, the companies, controlled that. Right. Only after the internet came out could you then think about like self-publishing a book. I don't remember people self-publishing books back in the 1970s. I don't have any information on that. I have no idea. I guarantee you, it just didn't happen. It, it wasn't something. I ever heard of. And how would you publicize it? There was no internet to let anybody know about it. How would you get it into all the bookstores? You needed a powerhouse that had been created to do it for you. Right. That's where I came from. Now, look at this. I got this little microphone between us. (laughs) It fits in a box that is probably smaller than a laptop computer. And I attach it to two mics, a couple of cords, and some mic stands, and I reach Mongolia. It's amazing. People are listening to this in Mongolia right now. This just was not the world that I grew up in. Right. So I'm, I'm listening to you as you're moving through this, and you're probably moving through it almost a generation after me because uh, I'm like early 60s. So 
How high up the corporate ladder do you eventually climb? So I went to executive vice president of the company and then chief revenue officer, which was the number two position in the company behind the CEO. And then- Chief revenue officer is number two. Well, I, I was responsible for all, all the, money, the revenue. For all the money. And, and for okay. the entire company. Got it. So- I was running in tandem with the CEO. And of course, you know, we had a chief financial officer and, uh, you know, there were other key positions, but in my mind, revenue is the lifeblood of the company. I had the number two job. So how many people were working for you? Oh gosh, maybe 500. What's that like to have 500 people working for you? It's easy because these days leaving there and going to work for myself is so much harder because if your computer breaks when you have 500 people working for you, it's a text message. I need a new computer. Someone come fix this. And within minutes, someone brings you a new computer. You have assistance to book all your travel. You have a team of people that does your marketing. It's easy. It's There's easier. this misconception oh, that, whoa, yeah, the whoa, higher whoa. you get now up, it's I'm easier. I'm trying to really wrap my mind around this. It's easier for me to have 500 people working for me than it is to be doing this by myself. Absolutely. Well, for me, it is because I've been there and done it, and it's a lot more work when you do it alone. Okay. Wow. I'm holding on to my hat here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... You got 500 people working for you. You are chief revenue officer. And what happens next? So we had taken the company from $100 million to $200 million company during this tenure that I was there. I had just won one of the most influential women in radio. This is in 2017. And the CEO I reported to became ill, and he elevated his daughter, the CFO, who was my arch nemesis, to the CEO position. Oh, boy. Yeah, and it, that did not last long. I got a phone call. I was in L.A., and she said, I'd like you to be in my office tomorrow. I flew home, drove the three hours over there, and she said, we no longer need your position in this company, uh, so you can either sign this memo, and one memo said, Heather has been fired, essentially, and the other one said, you know, Heather Monahan, a wonderful employee, has decided to start her own company and is leaving us, and we're so sad, and blah, 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 and I looked at her, and this was through practice as well, I said, I didn't write either of these memos, so I will not sign either. I don't know what's going on here. If you have nothing else to say to me, I'm leaving. And I took all the power out of that meeting at that point in time. And she got very red in the face and said, you need to sign this. And, you know, I'm going to give you a big check if you sign this. And I said, I'm not signing anything. And I'm in shock and I'm leaving. Goodbye. After 14 years, I just walked out and I cried my entire car ride home. Of course, I was devastated. I felt like I had lost everything, my paycheck, my security, my team, the company that I had built, you know, all of the success that I had created. And I was driving home not knowing what was in front of me. And it was one of the scariest things in my life. And what'd you do? Well, I got under a weighted blanket and drank a bottle of Chardonnay. And then I decided, you know what? Nobody knows I've been fired because she was trying to keep it out of the press. So thank goodness for social media. I took to social media and I posted, I have just been fired. I've never been fired in my life. And after 14 years of continual success and growth, I feel terrible right now. And if I've ever helped you in any way, I would really appreciate hearing from you today. And that post went crazy. 
When you say went crazy, when? I mean, hundreds of thousands of views and so many thousands of people reaching out to help me. And that's when Froggy from the Elvis Duran show, which is a huge radio show, 10 million listeners, tweeted at me, hey, just saw what happened. If I can help, let me know. And I tweeted back, get me on Elvis Duran. And he brought me on the show two weeks later to tell my story. And that really started that whole... On that show, Elvis said to me, Heather, this is crazy. You were just named one of the most influential women in radio and you get fired a couple weeks later. This is BS. Tell us what happened. And we started talking about the story and he stopped me halfway through and he said, clearly you're writing a book. And I said, clearly. But Cal, I wasn't. I was never the smart one, the author, the creator. I was always the sales one. And I jumped on that plane leaving New York and I Googled, how do you write a book? And I didn't know. (laughs) You laugh, but I'm serious. I saved the paper. I still have it here in the house because I really, I didn't know what to do. And, but basically it said, just sit down and write. That's all you have to do. So I decided I'll just write every single day. And I did that for one month and very quickly it started taking shape and I started realizing what I was writing about. So when you walked out of that office, you were fired. You just didn't sign anything that to get the check that she was trying to hold over my head yeah right so you never took the check no because a a major gag clause comes along with it i knew those kinds of meetings i'd been in them you know and it, it would say that i could never speak about the company nor my experiences over 14 years and so for it to be worth it to me it would have to be millions of dollars and she wasn't offering that kind of money wow I never really had a job, so I don't know what it's like to be fired. <laughs> oh, it's not fun. <laughs> oh, my God. It is a major gut punch. Wow. All right. So now you go on this radio show, and you come out, you Google how to, how to write a book, <laughs> and you start writing. And after a month, the book takes shape. Mm-hmm. How did you come to call it Confidence Creator? Because it sounds like your confidence was not at the highest point then. No, it was at the lowest. It was at but the But at the same point, you're fighting back. So something inside you had to be confident about it. Somewhere inside for, me, for I knew what to do. you not to sign that paper speaks to me of confidence. Or just anger at that lady because I really? also wanted to take all. I loved that dynamic. When someone's sitting in front of you gloating that they have power over you and then you shift the power, it is a really unbelievable moment. It's sort of like evil losing out to good. And just in that moment, it represented so much to me about it doesn't, you know, she grew up wealthy. Her dad handed her the business, whatever. And here I was. Growing I'm up in the a trailer. Hustler, like, you know, I'm busting my butt and, and I'm doing things right. And I'm, you know, I'm respecting people and supporting people. And I was the real deal. And she was really trying to just give me that kick in the teeth. And I wasn't going to take it. And, you know, standing up for myself that day, that went a long way to help me start build, rebuilding my confidence. And I started figuring out, hey, I've been here before. Remember, I was cheated on. I've been divorced. I've been through these low moments. And I rebuilt myself every single time. I'm going to write about that all of my low moments and how I learned through them to create real confidence and how I'm doing it right now. And that's, that was the inspiration for my book. How long did it take to do the book? Because the interesting thing is you made this book by yourself. Right. Whole thing. How long did it take you to do that? I wrote from September when I went on the Elvis Duran show until January 1st, and I was done writing. I found an editor, which was 
pivotal in really advancing the process because he had written 19 books. I had written yeah, zero. You need somebody who knows the rules. Who knows what to do? I right. had no, I, I didn't know what an ISBN number was. I didn't know any of these things. I didn't even know, how do you know what name you can come up with? I didn't know any of this stuff. So anyways, he was great and he had written 19 books. He really helped, you know, Heather, Phil, no one knows who Dylan is. You have to explain, it's your, your son, son right? right? So I had to learn all of these nuances I, I wasn't privy to. He had to educate me and he did very quickly. So we worked great together. And what about finding a publisher, somebody who can help you publish your own book? It's not the publisher's book, it's your book. Well, I wanted it to be a publisher's book back then because I thought, oh, I want to be in all the Barnes and Nobles and I want a speaking tour. And so I started Googling and researching how do you get an agent and how do you, you know, what does this look like? And when I mapped it out, the window of time looked like a year to a year and a half. And I, one thing I know from business is speed to market is critical in success when you're doing something new. So I'm not the only person with a great idea out there. There's a million others. And if I can move faster than them, I'm going to beat them to market. Oh and I, it's going to give me a, a point of advantage. Do you know what? I've met a few people like that recently who are just saying, Cal, speed, 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 speed. It's critical. And I... I say, I'm playing the long game. You I'm, can still play a long game and have speed to market. Really? Of course. Oh, you're going to have to explain this to me, but I don't want to get it off the track because this is like a big question to me. Somebody who was a snowboarding, like almost a world champ and highly successful in business. We met, we started to talk. I love the guy and everything about him is speed, 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 speed. And literally, <laughs> yeah. And he's saying, let's go. But I know like in the telling of a story, things don't go that fast. There have to be obstacles that are overcome and a story takes time to unfold. And just getting from point A to point B quick doesn't make a great story. In fact, it may not make a story at all. It's like, all right, you win. So great, you won. But what's the story that came along with it? But you're telling me something that I better pay attention to, I feel, because I'm not getting the benefit of speed. If I'm going to be a CEO, if I'm going to run my business, I better start. So I'm, I'm gulping hard here because I, I know you're right. Well, maybe the speed part doesn't have to apply to your storytelling, but maybe the speed part needs to apply to your business strategies, you know, or your go-to-market moves and marketing. You know, there's it doesn't just have to be about everything, you know, it could be about different components of your business. Okay, so now I've just <laughs> crazily stated to the world only a month ago, I'm going to generate a million dollars in new revenue by the end of May. And that was crazy enough. But if I'm thinking speed, then I'd say, and you know what? By the end of this year, I'm going to have a book out and I am going to have an online course out. Does that make you feel good speed wise? Yes. Okay. So I, I, that's the way I got to think. That's what you need to do. I was able to do that. You can do that. This is your wheelhouse. You're a creator. This it, is my wheelhouse. This is your strength. Step into it. My brain tells me everything you're saying is right, but it's like you're telling me, just take the leap. You can do this. 
Right. It's that fear. It, it's Fear is a liar. It's yeah. not real. And it really holds all of us back so much. You know what it is? It's exactly this. I've met these young entrepreneurs, like, let's do it fast, fast, fast. Let's hack this, hack that, hack this. To me, I grew up, the word hack meant you were a stiff, you were nothing. You, if you were a hack, it was the lowest mm -hmm. way of describing somebody. And so it astonishes me the way this word hack has suddenly become something that's great. Positive, right. And in my world, I sort of slowly built up and learned and learned and learned and got to a point where I was really confident so that when I did step in to a room to interview Muhammad Ali or Mikhail Gorbachev or Al Pacino, I belonged. I'm not leaping into it. I was ready. And what you're telling me is, Cal, you are ready. Go. But you, you need to use what you just described. You know, you just laid out for me all of these indicators that are those breadcrumbs to tell you you are ready for the next level. Look what you just described to me that you already were able to accomplish. Those are all indicators that this one's going to work too. Yeah, I have. Here's the thing, Heather. I have no doubts this is going to work. Then what's the problem? Uh, I guess there is no There isn't one. Problem. There you go. <laughs> just go faster. Just go faster. Absolutely. You're so clear on it. And I understand what you're saying. I feel that it was like, for me, when I went on my own, I knew it was going to work. So I, I know you're right. And you have that truth. You just need to move faster. Here, here's the thing. In my podcast, people from all over the world, they email me. They send me these messages. And you know what? I email them all back. Oh, I love that. But if I had... A hundred thousand more people who are listening, would I be able to email them back? I don't think so. But you'll have people on your team then that will help you. Well, this is, you know what? This has been suggested to me. Get, But then it's not me. Then it's not authentic. I would rather get a response back than nothing. Wow. That's, that's a great question. Would you rather hear nothing back or get a response back? I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around a lot of stuff here. But these I'm, aren't critical. You don't need to think about this right now. This is a I kind just, of BS that really, gets people off track. Really? This is not about moving your business forward. We don't need to pontificate about this. This is what I need. <laughs> this is what I need. Like avoid, these are distractions. That's a distraction, yeah. You know, here's the thing. This guy came to me, and this is a guy who's like, speed. He, he just goes down the mountain as fast as he can on his snowboard. Speed, speed, speed. And he's describing all these things. You can create a funnel. And you're not even going to have to look at any of these emails. You're not going to have to look at these requests that come in. Somebody else will look at them, figure out what's best, and then it goes to you. And I say, well, how do you know they're best for me? Because, see, when I talk to somebody authentically, back and forth, then I know. Then I find out what's possible. I'm not having somebody look at it just really fast, how much money? It's not going to be authentic that way. Right. And I will lose a piece of myself if I do that. That's and if good. I lose a piece of myself, everybody's going to smell it. And if everybody starts to smell it, then, uh, you know, he's not the same. He, he, he used to be one of us. Now he's just taking stuff at the bottom of the funnel. 
that word funnel really gets to me, let me tell you. And, and I know like people love this word funnel. They, they love it. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is because five years from now, I'll be able to come back and listen to this conversation with you over a bottle of Chardonnay and we'll laugh because maybe I'm still going to be the same authentic Cal and you'll say, you held on to yourself, didn't you? You will because you're so clear on the importance of that for you. You're going to have the right answers for yourself. You're hearing all of this different direction and advice from people. You'll know what resonates with you and what's right for you. The one thing that I'm sure of in this day and age, if you are not authentic, you have nothing. Agreed. It doesn't matter because especially the younger people, they smell the bullshit. Absolutely. So I got to, all right, I got to speed up. I got to speed up. You can speed up. I can speed up. And not lose your authenticity. I'm I'm working like 19 hours a day now, just making sure I get the emails back. And I still haven't like jumped into Instagram. I finally got Twitter under control. (laughs) Oh, you don't have someone manage your social media? No. You You need to do that. You have to stop looking as I'm not doing a great job for the people now. You could reach and impact so many more. You're not doing them a service. Look at it that way. If you could get someone on your team to manage your social, you could be reaching hundreds of thousands and a million. Why not get your message and, and information out to empower others? All right. I've been told this over and again, so it's obvious. It's true. And I got to deal with it. But the other thing I was thinking about, and it's the same thing that slows me down. All right, if I'm going to hire people, I want to make sure that I have a cushion, a financial cushion, if I'm going to hire a bunch of people so that I know I can pay them for six months. And I'm not going to have to look somebody in the eye and say, oh, you know what, we had this crazy thing happen and money didn't really come in the way we thought. So I'm sorry, that ain't happening. I'm going to be as dependable as my father. If somebody comes to work for me, they can depend on me. And so I'm not just jumping into this until I know I could be that dependable. Is that wrong? You have to do what's right for you. And this feels very emotional for you. You know, you're bringing up your father. So I think that's really important. However, the flip side that I would share with you is you will be able to accelerate revenues rapidly when you have a team, rapidly. I mean, here's what's going to happen. I don't know what your timeline will look like. That will be your choice. But when you actually have your team up and running and you're going to see how many less hours you have to work, how many more hours you can work creating, which that's your wheelhouse. You're the chief creator, right? right? Stop with the CEO crap. You're the chief creator, okay? (laughs) You need to surround yourself with these other people that can do the things you don't want to do that you don't like to do. And you're going to watch your business explode. Oh, man, just when I was liking to be a CEO, you come say I'm so over it. That's not your thing. You're, you, you keep talking. Creation I mean, you know is something? your thing. Here's, I get that. And maybe I'm wrong. I, I think I, what I'm just learning is there's a big difference between, say, being a CEO and being a manager. Mm-hmm. That as a CEO, you are the visionary. visionary. And it's the manager's job to... Execute, that, right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that actually helped me because I can see a vision, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're right. 
because I'm a terrible CEO. You know why? I don't even have anybody to delegate to. <laughs> <laughs> You're a control freak. I do you it think, all myself. Uh, is that what it is, no, you think? No, I think my opinion. It could be. No, my opinion, just knowing you for a very small window of time, is that you have put this level of excellence on everything you do and this incredibly high standard on yourself to perform at such a high level. That fear of taking on new things, moving quickly, empowering others and bringing people on scares you so much that you might not be at that level when in actuality, that will not be the case. And I know that on the outside looking in, that's your next leap is trusting that, that you can move faster, you can bring people on and things will accelerate and you'll reach more people and have more of a positive impact with your great creations. Okay, well, then you know what? Then Million Dollar May was a great idea because if it works, I'll have that buffer. I can start hiring people. I'll feel comfortable about it. And then we will go fast. We're not going to say if it works. When, when Million it, Dollar uh, May when it, <laughs> works, I am going to tell you we're going to move faster, hire more people, and this thing is going to blow up. Oh, I love it. I love it. Man, I got to learn to, I got to get in front of the mirror and learn to practice that. So what happens to you once you decide to, you told me that you're thinking of going to a publisher and then sure. you find out, oh, this is going to take a year and a half, which I'm thinking that's short because- Really? Yes. Because oh by gosh. the time you find an agent and then they sell the book and then they create the book, it's- at minimal a year and a half, minimal, because it is like a very slow moving industry. Now you're wow. just rolling your yeah, eye like me. So you, you did this, the smart thing because you understood speed. I get to write this, I got an editor to edit it, and now I'm gonna have a photographer take a beautiful shot of me. We're gonna put that on the cover, and this is a beautiful looking cover. Yeah, but I didn't know any of this. I was in the dark. I was just trusting my instinct and praying to God it worked out. I had no idea if my book was going to be terrible. And I mean, the whole thing was so scary for me. But I knew if I didn't get it out quickly, how was I going to have an epicenter of my company, my business? This was going to be that true center core of what I was creating. Then I didn't know what would come next, but then the speaking engagements came next, then the online course came next, then the brand endorsements and brand partners, all these different, the affiliate partnerships have come out of this, but I knew I needed, you need a product to sell. Wow. You know, people are already emailing me about being, being partners and I got to think fast. I got to think fast. You just evaluate it and know if it's aligned with you or not. And you'll know, and you'll say yes or no. Okay. But it's another revenue stream for you. So, so basically you get this book created, mm -hmm. but now here's the territory I don't have any idea of because everything I've done has been through a publisher. You're publishing this book yourself. Right. Which means you have to get it out to the bookstores. <laughs> you have to get it into in front of people's now eyes. Now your eyes are like wide open. Well, <laughs> how are you thinking? Oh, I can do this. Oh, I don't know. I just go. I just always think oh, I'm just man. gonna go. Are and I'll you figure one of those out. ready, fire, aim people? Probably yes. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. But I I have a lot of experience in business and sales, so I know I'm propped up with a lot of knowledge and a lot of contacts. And when you have knowledge contacts and you're willing to ask for help, 
you can really start connecting dots quickly. And that's what I did. When I found out you can't get in Barnes and Noble because you're not with a publishing house, I thought to myself, what value can I bring Barnes and Noble so that they'll want me to come in? And I went as a salesperson to them and I said, where's the local manager? And they brought her over and I said, hi, you know, how are you? I'm chatting her up because I want to find out what's important to her. And then I started finding out not enough people are coming to the store lately and they need some press and PR, but they don't have a budget. And I said, you know what's so crazy? I have this new book that's out. I get unbelievable press and PR. If I brought some cameras in here and had some of the news stations come in and cover me doing a book signing here, would that help you? Yeah, that would be flipping amazing. Okay, great. We've only got one challenge. My book currently isn't in the store. Could you help me get it in the store? <laughs> Done deal. Just, and then you put the paper in front of her. Sign, Sign right, right here. here and let's get this thing rolling. Sign right That's here. Right. Oh, yeah. man, I got to practice that. <laughs> Sign right here. <laughs> So it starts with one. Where was that one? Boston. That was in, okay, back to the roots. And how did that go? It was fantastic. We had the um, local uh, Channel 5 station came out and covered it. And I got great press. They got great press. They were happy. They sold a lot of books. I got my book in Barnes & Noble, which then allowed me to go to the large chain in Florida, which is Books & Books, and say, I was just covered uh, in Boston with Barnes & Noble. Oh, this is so smart. I'm doing this. I was keynote speaker at the She Summit here in Fort Lauderdale. It's coming up next month. I know I can drive a ton of business to your stores. Do you want me to put something similar together like what I did for Barnes & Noble in Boston for you here in Florida? And then that's where we they said yes. And they put my book into all the stores here in Florida. And then they I started pushing every keynote that I do in Florida. I send them. I don't send them to Amazon as you know, a partnership. I say, listen, I'll send the business to you. It's local people. I want to s- support local business. When local companies hire me, I send them to Books and Books to buy my book. This sounds like you can just march from one city to the next. It's just a matter of time. That's the problem. You know, you have to decide where is my time best spent? Is it best spent on writing the second book? Is it best spent on prepping, you know, my online course and creating the second online course? Is it best spent on updating images for social media? Is it best spent on working on a, a TV show with Hallmark? We're brainstorming on, right? There's so many opportunities out there when you really step into your passion and purpose, the universe just rises up and starts meeting you and you have to evaluate where do I go next because it can be overwhelming to say, yeah, of course I want to be in every Barnes and Noble, but I don't have the time to travel across the country to knock on every door. Now, this book became highly successful, correct? Yes. It hasn't even been out a year yet. I'm so proud of it. Yes. And how... How successful? Well, the first week it trumped Donald Trump for number one in business biographies, which was, that's my favorite favorite image that I have. I took a snapshot of that. It's my favorite. It's a bestseller on Amazon. It was a bestseller in um, personal transformation, spiritual transformation, business biography, business motivation, and one other category. So it's done really, really well. It was put into curriculum at my high school. It was put into curriculum at um, Boise State University. So a number, Harvard had me come teach a class there because of this book. I mean, it's been surreal, the response to it. And like, you know, just the personal messages I get from people is the most, most important thing to me. What is the core of this book? It's a compilation of my lowest moments and how I learned to create confidence. So I map out every single chapter as a personal story of my life 
and I share one insight that I learned from it. So Very for example, I, I share a story of when I got arrested, but the whole point of the chapter for the reader is that when you shine a light on your shame and own it, your fear dissipates and your confidence increases. Every chapter has a story and a lesson. Why do you think people want these lessons so much now? Because I didn't have them when I was younger. People aren't aware of a lot of, everyone has different life experiences, life teachers, and learns things differently. So to get access to confidence is a skill that can be developed. It's not something you're born with. That was news to me. I didn't know that. So for me to put this out there, yes, there might be a lot of books on confidence, Cal, but a lot of them are research-driven, and I wasn't the person that was going to pick something like that up, but I'm the person that would pick up a book that is relatable and interesting and entertaining, but I can learn from as well. Well, it sounds like you're making use of storytelling. Exactly. Have you always been able to tell stories? Yes, and that's one reason why you're a great salesperson. You don't even know it because the best salespeople are the greatest storytellers. Man, I got no excuses now. None. <laughs> it's like you rolling into the hotel saying, I need to tell you a story. Listen to my flight. And you telling about that woman and the baby sitting next to you, that woman at the front desk is going to be so, have so much empathy for you. She's going to find you that sweet. It's just storytelling. Oh, man. Well, I got to tell you, Heather, I can't wait to get to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much. You have just taught me so much in an hour or so. I'm just going to walk out of here a different person. Oh, that makes me so happy. But I'm mostly so happy that you're taking on this Iron Man. The Ultra Beast. Oh, my gosh. I'm the so, Ultra Beast. I'm so proud of you. So last year I did the trifecta, the Spartan trifecta, which is like a three to five mile obstacle course. Uh, that's the basic one. They call it a sprint. And then there's a super, and that's like, say, seven to 11, something like that. And then there's a beast. It's 14 to 17. And in, in it, there is, could be like 30 or more obstacles where you're climbing ropes, going over walls and under barbed wire and through mud. Amazing. So the ultra beast, the ultra beast, which I'm hoping to do in Hawaii in August, is you do a beast, say it's 17 miles, and then you come around, and when you finish, you start again, and you do another. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so and maybe there's something about that kind of long game that I like, but I'm going to come out of here thinking speed, speed, speed. Move fast, Cal. Move fast. This is business. And then move faster. And <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This is the start of a long friendship. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I, I just feel like we are. My this, brother from another mother. That, there you go. It's like left hand meets right. That's right. And we're going to see where this takes us both. I can't wait. All right. Well, I'm looking at this plaque that says girl boss. I, what do I call myself? I've got to come up with something really good for you. So we'll have to get back to everyone on that one. All right. Uh, Speed boss. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> wow. Speed boss. I like it. This is going to turn me into somebody different. All right. Got to go. Fast. Fast.
faster. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Heather. We'll see you. Thank you. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me along on this amazing journey. He has impacted so many lives. Tim is truly a hero for our times. I want to thank my sponsors for the most comfortable hoodies, tees, and sweatpants imaginable. Check out sportique.com, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. For office space around the world, check out WeWork, and you'll get 20% off on that space, whether it's a small room or a theater. Just go to www.we.co slash cow. I want to thank everyone who has touched this adventure that led to Million Dollar May. My idea to bring in a million bucks in new business by the end of this month in order to finance my new company. If you know anybody whose business would be improved by having his story told, please reach out to me. I'm here to help. I hope you'll all be a little more confident in your own way because of Heather and that one day we clink glasses to it. Cheers.